In this Inspiring Schools podcast special, we hear from a selection of past guests about their thoughts on the topic of the future school. What are your thoughts about the future of education in itself? I mean, you've talked about what you're doing at Mulgrave, but if you were to fast forward 20 years, how different would it be? There's been a lot of talk about transformation in education, Simon. I mean, you've been very engaged in, in those discussions. My reflection is that there have been some attempts at transformation. And I'm not sure that too many of those attempts have proved successful. You know, there's examples around the world where people have taken a very different approach and actually it's not worked. So I take the view that change and continuous change to embrace how the world is developing is really important. And sometimes kind of radical change is necessary. But I kind of use this phrase radical incrementalism. We can take small incremental steps. They can be radical But transformation is probably not the way forward. And so, and of course, if you continue to take small, radical, incremental steps, then you may end up with a transformed product or a transformed school system or school. I take the view that education is developing and growing and improving in small steps. And there are some very interesting things going on around the world. I like to, like you, I mean, I read quite a lot about, you know, some of the great thinkers around the future of schooling and the you know, the World Economic Forum came up with, uh, you know, there are four different scenarios for the future. And the one that I really like is the one which is around the concepts of community. And I come from a community school background in the UK. I was in a public system in a community, great community school in the southwest of England. I've kind of taken that concept and, and actually the World Economic Forum has picked it up as one of their scenarios that in future uh, schools could be more of a community endeavor. And of course, there are pros and cons in that. We're kind of limited by our our communities. But I like this concept of it, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And for me, one of the the very interesting scenarios is the, the extent to which education is not the preserve of the teachers or the administrators in charge of schools, but education is the preserve of parents and of communities and community members. And I'm pretty excited by that. It is quite a kind of radically different idea to the way most schools work. It's something which we're trying to embrace much more here. And I think it's got real mileage. Community means people. You know, there was local community. And then through technology, we get this global community that also can help shape and influence and inspire as you go forward. As you know, I've been talking about the future school for several years now. The idea is that schools need to be disruptive to prepare students for future jobs. We can't even imagine. When thinking about the future school, we need to be preparing students for a fast-paced, dynamic world. What are some of the challenges the next generation of adults are going to be facing that maybe we've not seen before? Oh, my gosh. There's such a list there, I think, Simon. I know when we get together administratively and talk about that very fact, it's, it's multifaceted, of course. But I think we talk a lot and, and mainly we focus on the fact that we need to, as I said earlier, we need to arm students. We need to arm our graduates whom we hope are going to be the leaders within our community and beyond. We need to arm them with the skills that they are going to need to be competitive in a marketplace that they may not even understand exists today. And what I mean by that is, and I haven't looked at this in some years now, but it wasn't that long ago that the Department of Labor here in the United States claimed that, I can't remember, don't quote me on this, but I think it was five out of the top eight earning jobs that they expected 10 years down the road didn't even exist at the time of the writing of the article. So the point is, 
getting kids ready to be a lawyer or a doctor or anything else is, is still fine. Teaching them the skills they need to be uh, effective in known entities, no problem. We can still do that. But we also have to arm them with the skills and the abilities to do jobs that we can't even imagine exist at this point. So what it really means academically is that there has been a shift, and, and I would say an ongoing shift, not necessarily away from content, but adding the skill development to what used to be a content delivery dominated education system. So it's no longer just about having information, but what are you going to do with it? Um, we need to be teaching these kids critical thinking skills. We need to be able to teach them to be effective communicators, written, verbal, and otherwise. So it's that set of skills that they're going to need. And one of the most important things, and this gets specific to your question, I think, kids need to understand how to synthesize, how to seek out, and how to decipher an incredible amount of information that's coming at them more quickly than you and I could, can even comprehend. They have access to so much more information, some of it really good, some of it not so good. And that's one of the tasks. I mean, when we were growing up, I mean, I was taught how to use an encyclopedia and I was taught how to use a dictionary and how to use some of the basics. But now kids have arguably too much access to information and we need to teach them how to synthesize. We need to teach them how to decipher between what's true and what's not, how to get to your sources. What's a firsthand source versus something that maybe a Twitter troll has out there that just has no basis to it. So that I would argue is one of the biggest skills we need to teach kids. Information literacy maybe is the, is the right umbrella to put that under. Yeah, and I think there is a, a global body that actually recognized this called Digital IQ. And there are online tests and things you can do to see how digitally literate you are. But coming back to your points around, around those skills, it has to be skills-based. You talk about critical thinking, problem-solving, creativity. These are three areas that the World Economic Forum listed that employers want from these young men and women who go out into the workplace. And so education has to naturally adapt. Otherwise, we're in a conveyor belt or cookie-cutter education to this off-the-peg life. And we might need some lawyers, but we don't need lawyers. The, the robots will take them because it's, it's crunching numbers and, and it's precedent. So you've got to get a go on to argue. The fact is, yeah, those jobs, have, you know, old jobs have been displaced and created new jobs. The other thing about content and teaching our kids how to access and mine or synthesize is that we're in this period of content shock. The amount of content that's produced or published or shared or um, recorded is completely overtaking the rate in which we can humanly consume. I think I worked out um, with some research on one of my keynotes I did a couple of years ago. The amount of content our kids get access to every 60 seconds is more than the average 17th century person could consume in a lifetime. And it kind of begs the question, you know, what do you trust? So how do we go about teaching kids how to trust, how to search? Because another quote I had, I was lucky to speak um, alongside a Harvard professor, and he said like 90% of people don't know how to Google. And I use that every single time I speak in front of schools. And I challenge teachers to go, how many times have you ever done an advanced search? Have you, have you ever looked beyond the first page of Google? And 99% of haven't. And I kind of begs the question, you're meant to be teaching my kids. You know, we haven't taught ourselves a basic piece. Are we the best role models? You have essentially answered the question the way I would have, Simon. We need to start with the faculty. We need to start with the adults involved. We do a great deal of our professional development focused on just that. How do you be a good role model? If we're going to hold standards in place for our students, which we certainly do, I mean, we, 
I think, uh, arguably the top academic school here in Kentucky. So we obviously have some standards in place for the students. We better be modeling that very well as the adults on our campus as well. So I think it starts with professional development for your faculty. And then it's one thing to, to show a group of adults, you know, for instance, as you referenced, how to do an advanced search in Google, how to look beyond the ads, because that's, that's what the first search responses are gonna be, are they're virtually all paid ads. So how do you get beyond that? How do you dig deeper? So it's one thing to teach the adults how to do that, and then teaching the adults how to teach that to the students, and that can be a whole different skill set. This is what I find working with faculty in this specific realm more than anything else. Faculty are afraid to make a mistake. Faculty are afraid to allow things to get messy for a little bit, and you really have to get over that. You, you, you know, faculty too often, and I'm speaking about myself. I, I certainly was in the classroom as well, and when I was. I was, I was very risk averse, but you have to be okay with the messiness. You have to be willing to put it all out on the table and sift through it and talk about the good, talk about the bad, talk about why the bad is the bad. But if you pretend it's not there or you don't know it's there, the kids are gonna find it. And if they find it without the context that you're able to provide for them in the, in the realm of what you're teaching, then the same lessons won't get taught. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. The fact that Riviera Ridge cultivates a progressive educational model, what is the progressive education and what is the most significant difference with a traditional education? So I want to be really clear. Progressive is not a political statement. And I know that's been used quite a bit in a variety of different political forums across the world. It's not about being, it has nothing to do with politics. John Dewey in the early 1900s was a founding professor of Teachers College at Columbia University. He's considered kind of the father of progressive education. And what it is, I I saw an article on it yesterday and I can't remember what I was reading. We're not school-centered, we're student-centered. It's about the child. It's never about the school or the name of the school or where the school is or who teaches there, or it is always about the child and the child's education. And over the last 25 years specifically, although it goes back, you know, at least a hundred years, my child learns with the way my child does and your child learns the way your child does. And we might have seventh grade math to offer each of these children if they're both in seventh grade, but one's going to process the information in a way that they're going to process it. And the other one's going to process it in the way they're going to process it. It's a differentiated model. It's not unique. Lots of schools are doing it. We're planting our roots in the fact that we're going to make sure that with the 220 or 50 students on campus that we have every year, each child is going to be provided with the highest level of educational experience possible for them with a really solid and robust curriculum, but that meets their needs. So if they need to have a pace that's quick and fast and getting through it and being challenged, they're going to have that. And if they need a pace where they can take some work home and do some homework and be thinking about it and talking to their parents about it and processing it and taking the week, they're going to have that. But they're going to walk away with a confidence as learners that doesn't get in their way as we prepare them for high school and college. I perceive a traditional model is here's our school, here's our curriculum, good luck, right? As opposed to you are the most unique child we've seen today. And I could say that to five different kids because each of them are going to tell me something different about what they learned. And I could have given them the same book to read. 
but one's going to notice the characters. The other ones are going to notice where the characters live. The other ones are going to say what the characters did. None of the answers are wrong. I always use the phrase, we're all born original, so don't live your lives as a copy. You know, it's something I teach all my kids and it's, it very much is that. And I think education has been left behind because sometimes it's so hard to change and we stick on this conveyor belt to this kind of cookie cutter education to an off the peg life. And, you know, it's not what we know is going to work. A happy, confident child can achieve anything. I have a funny story about where education has changed. So I'm a product of the 70s. I grew up in public school through my eighth grade year, but then I went off to private school after that. But in my first grade year, this head of school with her, all of her creative leadership style and joy and fun around leadership was asked to stand in the corner because she couldn't keep her mouth shut in first grade. <laughs> and, I, and that's what happened. I can still see the corner that I stood in in my first grade classroom because I was too expressive. And I can tell you today that if we had a teacher standing a child in the corner face back to the school, that teacher would not be here tomorrow. So education has changed whether we like it or not. And in this particular instance, that I can tell you right now, that was shame-based. It did not build my confidence. I think we can all go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s in terms of how we're all educated. I think it was, you know, you look at the shame-based, the teacher's always right. It's my way or the highway. And we know that it doesn't grow people. Within any organization, it doesn't grow people. And we need to grow people. I've been saying for years that we need to have future-proof schools. I talk about the future of education, the future school. And the reason why is simple. Today's students will be doing jobs that don't exist now. And I always challenge schools, are we fit for purpose? And have we pulled our head out of the ground, looked around and made sure that we're relevant? And at a time in history when children know more about the real world than we do, you know, are we the best role models? Certainly when it comes to technology and media, it seems that thinking behind Laurel Sinks to programming is pushing boundaries that many schools could follow. Could you give me a brief overview of the programs you're running, including the electives and the internships? Sure. So to me, it's getting the girls outside of these walls and uh, the artificial walls that sometimes we inadvertently create in the classroom through our, our models of education, breaking through those barriers. We know through our Laurel Center for Research on Girls, we've done studies where we know that girls and students in general, when they are engaged in purposeful, meaningful activities, they're going to be more invested. And so the thought behind that study, the follow-up from that study was to create the signature programming where girls have choice to engage in dream, dare, do electives, which are student or teacher generated courses that provide an interest, a short-term dive, a semester long or year long experience to protege internship programs where a student can shadow intern or do research assistantship with one of our community partners or the capstone program, which is a three-year commitment by application where then students uh, explore topics through Harkness discussions and intellectual conversations towards a culminating project where they're uh, tackling a problem and meeting that problem with the solution in the community. So that is housed in our schedule. So every other Wednesday, we build in time in our schedule to devote to these programs. So they're not in competition with after-school programs or other classes, but are actually a culminating moment in a student's week to take this deep dive. Is it mandatory that all girls take on this? There's not an elective that it, you know, some want to do, but others don't. It's, it's actually embedded as part of what you do at the Laurel. Yes, it's required by all students that they're in one of those three programs. How long has the program been running? 
So the Capstone and Protege programs have been in existence for about 12 years, but the Dream Dare Do elective is more recent in the last five years. And that's in response, again, to the schedule change where we took that big step to say, not only do we believe this is important for some students before school, after school, during lunch, we believe this is important for all of our high school students. I love the Dream Dare Do. I've got two girls, I've got two boys. So, I mean, my daughter's just gone off to university. I know how different they take to learning and some of the barriers that they each have. Do you think that this is applicable to boys' education as well as at girls? Or do you feel that this is something that girls can flourish at more? I absolutely believe it's uh, something for all students. I've taught at all boys' schools. I'm at an all-girls school now, and I've taught co-ed. And I love advocating for girls and women and uh, helping to uh, bridge the divide and create more access to opportunity. I feel that's uh, part of our role as men in society, what we can do to uh, rectify our uh, professional world. So I'm very thrilled to be at Laurel and help make that happen. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.